and Sanctuary with Emma Newman. Hello, my lovelies. Oh, it's awful out there, isn't it? Let's have a nice cup of tea together and maybe a cheeky biscuit or three and have a little catch up. Well, I'm having a cup of tea. You can have whatever you like, of course, as long as it makes you happy. If it pleases you, feel free to imagine that we're in a cosy little cottage with a thatched roof and a roaring fire. There's a tin of biscuits, so help yourself, and there's hot chocolate if you want it too. If this is your first time here, welcome. I'm going to talk to you about things that have made me happy, things that have given me hope, and then a little bit about what I've been up to and some nerdery. There are five segments in all, and it's all unscripted. Above all else, I want to create a sanctuary just for a little while, just for you and I, so that we can restore ourselves. Because goodness knows we all need it. Part one, a delightful real world experience. Recently, I went to London for a work thing and I traveled up the day before and I was put up in a hotel literally two minutes walk from the Tower of London, which was really amazing. <laughs> and I, as a result, was right there in the city. And so I took the opportunity to go and have a hot chocolate with an old friend of mine from my university years and all of the ones following. And the reason it was such a delightful real world experience wasn't just the fact that I got to have hot chocolate with a dear friend and a catch up, which was wonderful. It was also because I had the opportunity to walk through the centre of London. And in the past, I've always walked in London, if at all possible, because it's one of those cities where everything is actually really quite close together compared to other cities I've been to in my life. And I actually prefer it to travelling on the tube. I find the tube both weirdly exhilarating and awful. And in these times of um, enduring plague, shall we say, I thought I would feel safer if I walked in the fresh air. It was a beautiful day and I did not regret it. I love and hate London. <laughs> it's one of those places that I find so intellectually stimulating to walk around. I'm a huge fan of and nerd regarding architecture. I know practically nothing about it, but I really pay attention to the details wherever I go. And it's something that um, has been remarked upon in the past that when I go anywhere, I don't notice people. I notice the place, I notice the buildings. Um, and I always look up, that's one of my life rules, going to any kind of uh, built up environment, especially an older city, is to always look up because there are so many beautiful architectural details that most people just don't even see. Having the chance to walk through London for the first time in many years, I mean, goodness me, it's at least three, four years since I went, I can't remember. And it certainly had been many more years than before that, that I'd had a chance to walk in like the city of London, that area, and uh, walk through um, to the river. I walked down from the Tower of London, past St Paul's, and then down to the river. 
and walked along the embankment down to uh, Waterloo, which was uh, where I met my friend. And it's about an hour's walk. And the thing that really struck me was how many skyscrapers have appeared in the city of London just since I was last there. It really has changed so much just in the last 10 years. I used to work in the centre of London. I used to be a teacher and I used to commute in every day. I don't know how I did that. <laughs> well, you know, I was frequently ill and exhausted and <laughs> burnt out quite often. But anyway, it was really striking how different it felt. I've never had that feeling of urban canyon before in London, and I had that for the first time. And that was interesting. Even though the skyscrapers in London are small fry compared to, you know, places in America and elsewhere in the world, it was really striking. The other thing I love about walking through London is that it is such an old city that you have so many different architectural periods existing literally side by side. And one of the things that I've always loved to do is walk down a, a street and you, it's almost like you can see where the bombs must have dropped in the Second World War because you'll have, you know, an original Tudor building and then a 1960s concrete monstrosity next to it and then a Georgian building, like literally in the same row in some places. It really is a fascinating place to walk around. It was one of those occasions where it made me reflect upon how much my life has changed. When I was walking back, I took a different route back and I happened to walk past a building which, oh, this is where being unscripted is annoying. College of Arms, I want to call it. I think it was the College of Arms. And it's basically the place where all of the heraldry in the UK is recorded. I'm saying the UK, I don't know if it's just English heraldry, but I'm not sure. Anyway, I went there many, many, many years ago to take a student on a trip because she was really fascinated by heraldry. I did one-to-one -one tuition for her and um, she wanted to go and see the place that they're actually kind of officially recorded and it was absolutely fascinating. And that was about, oh my goodness, 16, 17 years ago and I just couldn't believe how long ago it was. Because in my mind, it kind of almost feels like yesterday that it happened. It made me reflect upon the march of time and how much things had changed for me. But as I walked past the building, of course, it hadn't changed at all. It hadn't changed for decades upon decades <laughs> and probably won't ever change that building unless something catastrophic happens. And that's the thing that I really love about London is that there are so many places where it is absolutely up to the minute modern and then... You have buildings which are, in some cases, over a thousand years old, just sitting there, doing their thing, as they have for centuries, as everything else has changed around it. Yeah, I find it a really rewarding and magical experience. And it always makes me want to write urban fantasy. Part two, a delightful creative work. So recently, I've been on a bit of a nostalgia trip with music. Not that I was seeking nostalgia. It was just that I stumbled across a mention of a band in a, an article I was reading. I thought, oh, I haven't listened to them for years. So I went and uh, found my old albums. And the band is Pulp, which was, I mean, it's still going, I think. I'm not even sure. 
but they've been around for a very long time and they made it big during the 90s Britpop era, but they had been around for a long time before they, they made it big. And so by the time they had their kind of breakout hits, they were already a very experienced, very tight band. And the album, my favourite album of theirs, is one called His and Hers, which is, if memory serves, the one that came out before they made it big. And there's a song on there called Babies. And if you are so inclined, I would like to invite you to go and listen to it. I love that song so much. There are three songs by Pulp that I feel are kind of perfect songs. And I don't mean objectively perfect, because it's music. And that is not my specialism. And how could anyone ever say that anything is perfect when it is an artistic work? There's obviously subjectivity involved. But when I listen to them, they they are so good on so many levels. And the three songs that I love in particular are Babies, which is on the His and Hers album. And then, of course, Common People, which is one of my favourite songs of all time, and Sorted for Ease and Whiz, both of which are on Different Class which is the album that came afterwards. And that was their big hit, you know, album. And there are so many other songs by them that I absolutely love. Lip Gloss, uh, Do You Remember the First Time, Underwear. There are so many amazing songs that they've done, but those are the three standout songs for me. And I wanted to talk a little bit about each one because the thing that I really love about these songs and, and those two albums in particular is just how lyrically strong they are. There are so many really smart things that are said in them and in babies it's basically a confession the song is a confession about this terrible thing this lad has done (laughs) but it it expresses it encapsulates a time in someone's life so well and the thing that I also love about that song as well is that the the music the feel of the music the emotion is conveyed in the music as well as the lyrics and it builds up to a crescendo where he makes the absolute hard hitting bomb of the confession that the whole song builds up to because he's explaining how this awful thing that he did came about. It just sounds so awful and so plausible. It's a magically wonderful combination of perfect words, perfect emotion in the music for me. I love it. And then Common People, of course, it's a huge hit. There may be people listening to this, rolling their eyes and going, oh God, it was played all the time in the 90s and I'm so bored of that song. If you haven't listened to it for a while, I invite you to go back and listen to it again. I love that song so much. I love how it starts off so slow and gets faster and faster and faster as the rage builds inside it. And the lyrics are incredible. It's a really great song. And then the third one, the third favourite of mine, Sorted for Ease and Wiz, is funny. I was just slightly too young to participate in rave culture. I, I was at the, exactly the wrong age. When it was at its height, I was still at school. And also, you know, I lived in Cornwall <laughs> for a big chunk of it. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it, it wasn't anything that was happening nowhere where I was or could get to because it was difficult to get anywhere without a car. And uh, yeah, I just didn't have the opportunity to experience that culture, but I, I absorbed it through everything that was happening at the time and all of the music and all of the very worried news reports and, and all this kind of stuff. But it, it was a real cultural phenomenon that, that I was so curious about. And this song captures the feel of it. And again, it's another example of how 
the music itself captures the emotion of just being really high on drugs, <laughs> really messed up. But there's this bit where, where he's like, I want to call my mother and say, Mother, I can never come home again because I seem to have left an important part of my brain somewhere, somewhere in a field in Hampshire. It's just... <laughs> It just really tickles me. But the whole, the, again, it's another story. It's it, all These three songs are all stories. Uh, but it, to me, it just captures perfectly this subculture of going to participate in this huge and utterly bizarre social experience that is both unifying and horribly alienating all at the same time. And I find that really interesting. Part three. Something that gives me hope. There's an associate professor of architecture called Stuart Hicks. And he has a YouTube channel that I've been watching for a long time um, about architecture. And I really like him as a YouTube presenter, obviously as a professor. I'm guessing he does lectures and things. So he's very experienced at explaining concepts. And yeah, they're very good. I like them anyway. He recently did a video talking about how native ecologies are being restored in five key areas of Chicago. It's a really great video. I will link to it in the show notes. What I love about this video in particular, and he's done lots of interesting ones, is that he shows how the attitude in architecture in Chicago in particular has shifted from in the early 1900s, where it was all about imposing a particular aesthetic on natural forms. So he talks about how there's a, a strip on the bank of Lake Michigan, which have got these really grand European style classical architecture buildings. But the banks, the bank side on the lake was straightened out, covered over, completely ordered in a highly artificial way and that now that is being systematically reversed. Well, the reason this gives me hope is because I really love seeing things where the way that something has been done in the past, there were reasons for it, probably good and bad. I don't know whether it's in equal measure, but there, you know, people were doing something that didn't have nature in mind other than to make it as aesthetically pleasing and uh, easy to control as possible. And that that is hugely, hugely damaging, but that, that understanding wasn't there at the time. And also it wasn't done on the scale that it was in later years. You know, we we're talking about one like mile long strip on a bank of a lake. When you have that replicated, as we did over, you know, the 20th century, if you think about the amount of building that took place and the huge amount of destruction to the environment that that carried out, seeing attitudes change now and people reflecting upon how how damaging and how impoverished those environments are now, that we can undo it, that we can restore, that we can learn and undo those mistakes and still have architecture that is dramatic and exciting and does all of the things that you want great architecture to do for people, whilst also not only restoring, but enhancing and revitalising natural ecology in the area as well. I love that stuff. That makes me very, very excited. And he talks about these five different areas, the use that they had in the past, how they were 
constructed, like the the ideas, the architectural ideas behind why that was done in the past and what's been done now to correct it. Things like that really do give me hope. I think it's one of those things where you can look at it and you can go, that's terrible that that happened and that makes me really sad. But I choose to focus on the positive side of it, that people are aware of it now and are actively undoing it in many places all over the world. And there are lots of different cities where architecture is being approached very differently with ecological considerations at the centre. Really interesting stuff being done in Malaysia and Singapore and yeah, so many places that are really fascinating and look really different and look really quite solar punk in some instances. Adjacent to this is the shift not only in terms of the space and how it's used, but also the materials and how there are now um, skyscrapers, not the tallest skyscrapers, but there are still skyscrapers that are now being built with timber instead of steel and concrete. And that is fantastic. I hope that this is a trend that continues and uh, accelerates. Part four, adventures in surviving late stage capitalism as a writer. If you've been waiting for this one, you know this episode has been a tiny bit late. Apologies. Oh, it started to pour down outside. I don't know if you can hear the rain on the window, but that, that's rain if you can hear it. <laughs> In episode three, I had my late night DJ voice because I had that horrendous cold and it took ages to recover from. And I've had a bit of post-viral fatigue from it. I'm not going to lie. And I've had the nature of the work things that have been happening recently is that I've had like a couple of really busy, intense days and then that's absolutely wiped me out. So I've had to rest for a day or two and then get back. And, and it's it's been very frustrating, but I've been trying very hard to be careful because I don't want it to turn into something long term and chronic. So I've been pacing myself, uh, which is frustrating because there are a lot of things I want to do and get done. But that's what's been happening. That being said, I've been doing a lot of stuff still <laughs> just because you, you have to, right? One of the things that I've uh, made some progress on, which I'm very relieved about, is the audiobook version of the Planetfall short story collection, which has been constantly been being pushed back and delayed because other work has come in that I've needed to prioritise. And so it's been nice to chip away at that. I've always said that reading aloud and in particular narrating something is the best way to proofread anything you've written. And that's why I've held back on bringing out the ebook version of the stories until I've done the narrating because I'm finding errors in the manuscript that I have been through so many times. And it isn't until you come to narrate and you have to pay attention to every single word to say it perfectly that you realise the errors. So it's a very, very useful exercise and it will make for a better ebook. And potentially I'm still umming and ahhing about whether to do a print version, but the manuscript will be better for it. So I've enjoyed that. It's been weird and nice narrating things in the Planetfall universe again. I've also had some time in the studio at Audio Factory as well, recording the Good Neighbours audiobook for Stephanie Burgess that was a successful, wildly successful Kickstarter project. And oh, I've enjoyed that so much. I really am looking forward to it coming out. The thing that I've really loved about it is that it is, it's just so wholesome, but it actually also has some really important stuff in it about the nature of overcoming trauma and 
being able to trust people again and trust yourself and the strength in community and in particular against the rise of evil in the world and it's it's lovely it's it's been such an enjoyable project to record and it's also made me happy because it's given me the opportunity to work with one of my favorite producers a very lovely lady called Kate I I love working with her because she is so knowledgeable her encyclopedic knowledge of the pronunciation of words never ceases to astound me yeah I I love working with her so that's been a joyful project in entirety. I've really enjoyed that. I've also got audiobook proofing work on the go. So there's been lots and lots of audio stuff that's been happening lately. It's the weird nature of my work in that, yes, I'm a writer, but I'm also an audiobook narrator and I'm an audiobook proofer and I do all of these other things because sustaining a living through writing is alone is very, very, very difficult. I've also been playing around with art stuff as well. In particular, I've been messing about with more sculpting, um, using polymer clay. One evening I sat down and decided I wanted to make something, so I made a very tiny baby dragon called Harold, who is sitting on some books, and I enjoyed it so much. Uh, if If you want to see him, I did a little video that's on my YouTube channel. If you just search for Emma Newman author on YouTube, you'll find my channel. Um, And you can see Harold, the book dragon. And what I'm planning to do is to make just a few little cute things, maybe some Christmas themed things if if the mood takes me, and to begin to sell my stuff online for the first time. And my aim is to do that in the first week of December so that people can order things in time for Christmas. Obviously only in the UK, but with postage and everything being the way it is at the moment, I think that's probably a sensible thing for my, my first outing. But yeah, that's that's currently my plan at the moment. I've also been experimenting with creating three-dimensional shapes on canvas to paint over. And I've been messing about with fabric and plaster of Paris and having a wonderful, messy, fun time. And that's been great. The march towards doing much more visual art and being able to sell it online is uh, continuing apace. And I've been in, in the background to all of this working on how nervous I am about all of this, how nervous I am about showing people what I've made and overcoming that. It's one of those things that I was thinking about this the other day. I had to overcome that in writing too. There was a time in my life when I didn't share my writing with another soul after some very uncomfortable experiences. And I had to overcome that to become a published author. So I know that this is a similar process. It's just it's in a different medium. I'll get there. But yeah, it's been a strange time of being very, very busy in bursts. And, you know, obviously recording in the studio and having a couple of real world meetings about things and having lots of audio work to do. And then falling over for a couple of days because I've just been too exhausted. (laughs) But I'm sure that another couple of weeks and I'll be tipped up again. Part five, delicious nerdery. Okay, I'm going to do something controversial here. I'm going to talk about Wesley Crusher in Star Trek Next Generation. (laughs) I can't believe I'm doing this. (laughs) Look, I, I make no attempt to hide just how much of a nerd I am. 
And Star Trek The Next Generation is one of my lifelong loves. And in the last couple of years, I hadn't watched it for like two decades. But in the last couple of years, when I was going through the breakdown and going through some really, really tough times, I suddenly remembered how much of a comfort it was to me in my teenage years when I first discovered it. And I had some terrible things happen when I was a teenager and it was incredibly traumatic. And I developed what could very legitimately be argued to be a very unhealthy relationship with the show (laughs) in that I really did become obsessed with it. The Enterprise crew really did occupy the space of my family in my head, as in found family. It's what I needed in my life. They became it. When I look back on it, I think, oh, wow. Yeah, I can see why why that happened. But I had such an intense relationship with it that going back to it, I must admit, I was a little bit nervous. I was like, oh, I need something comforting. I need something to feel safe. That used to comfort me. It used to help me to feel safe. I'm going to give it a go again. And I have not looked back. Dear listener, every single night I watch Star Trek Next Generation before I go to sleep. And it helps me to unwind. It helps me to feel safe. And that means that over in the last cu- over the last couple of years, I've literally re-watched every... And in some cases, watched for the first time. I've watched every single episode of Star Trek Next Generation from the first pilot to the very last. My goodness, I could talk for hours upon hours upon hours about all of the things that I've thought watching it, rediscovering it. It's quite fascinating to me, the evolution of the show over the seven seasons, etc, etc, etc. But the thing that I decided I wanted to talk about right now, right here, is Wesley Crusher, which I'm actually the most surprised by this (laughs) because... When I was a teenager, and like many teenagers who watched the show at the time, uh, he was not my favourite character by a long shot. And watching it in my late 40s now, I realise that pretty much all of my attitudes towards Wesley Crusher that were formed as a teenager were rooted in jealousy. I I was just really jealous. I wanted to be him. Why did he get to be on the Enterprise and have that amazing life when I didn't? Blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And watching it now, decades later, I have been struck by actually how fond I am of the character now. I think one of the things that I've been reflecting upon watching him is that once the jealousy has been lost to maturity and the passage of time, I could see him as a actually really quite nuanced gifted child syndrome (laughs) vehicle. (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting watching him go through things that actually I could relate to in a big way and the way that he's treated by adults the way that he doesn't fit in anywhere he doesn't fit in with his peers he doesn't fit in with the rest of the crew because of his circumstances and it's like oh wow actually there were huge chunks of my teenage years where I had incredibly similar experiences it's just that they weren't in space Damn it. The other thing that really struck me about him is that I love the arc that he has. That he starts off as this, you know, yeah, he is pretty annoying in season one and, you know, some bits of season two. But he's an awkward, 
really super intelligent kid. He's going to be annoying and screw things up. But watching them again, it's like he's actually so sweet and so kind and sensitive and caring. And I also really love the fact that he has this incredible start in life, has this incredible opportunity on the Enterprise. He's, you know, he can learn as an acting ensign on the flagship of the fleet, the best crew, the best captain. He starts off at the point that everyone else is striving to get to. And then he has to go to the academy and it all falls apart. And I love that. I love the fact that he starts off having everything handed to him on a plate, finding so many things effortless because of his intellect, and then meeting the brick wall of real life, that even when you live in a 24th century utopia, it's hard, it's hard to cope with. And that he struggles and he screws up catastrophically at the academy and has to do real soul searching. And then, can I spoiler a show that's 30 odd years old? Yes, I think I can. So spoilers coming and then realises that Starfleet isn't for him. And having to meet that head on to come to terms with the fact that all of the amazing people in his life have been rooting for him, helping for him to achieve this goal. And then he has to realise that it's the wrong thing for him to do. I find that really compelling and really interesting. Right from season one, pretty much, isn't it? He's, he's destined to go off and do amazing things with the Traveller. And I love that they follow that through. And they take their time over six, seven years to tell that. I love that. I love that they said, yeah, we'll seed this really, really early on. And then it's going to come to fruition. It's, I think, a really interesting arc. I think that Will Wheaton played him brilliantly. It's such a hard role to play. And I know that he got a lot of flack at the time and a lot of people were mean because they were you know, probably experiencing the same thing that I was at the time of being really jealous. And, <laughs> and also just, you know, he is annoying at sometimes the character, not Will Wheaton. Will Wheaton is a diamond and he's an amazing guy. And uh, I have a huge, huge amount of respect for him. But going back and watching his performance as an actor, he puts so much into it. He's got so such expressive eyes. And yeah, I think probably having become a mum in the intervening years, it's like I just want to look after him. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting revisiting my opinions about a character over 30 years later and going, blimey, I feel completely differently about this. You know, that there are so many times when I've been watching an episode thinking, I really want to do a thing where I could... You know, like you have those commentary tracks over DVDs and things like that. I've often dabbled with the idea of like recording audio commentaries for people to listen to whilst watching Next Gen. So it could be like we're watching it together. I don't know. I think it's something which is such a passion of mine and I'm so nerdy about that I kind of want to share it. But it feels weird because, you know, it's not like the world needs any more people talking about what they think of Star Trek Next Generation. And goodness knows I don't have the time, but... I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. If anyone, And I'm assuming that nobody would be interested. But if I'm wrong about that, let me know. Let me know if you would like to listen to more detailed burblings, perhaps on an episode-by-episode episode basis <laughs> on Star Trek Next Generation. Because obviously, listening to this, you know I overthink things and, and often overanalyze things. But I, I, there is so much in my head that I want to talk about, about Star Trek Next Gen. And so 
Congratulations. Here you are. Here's the first little dollop of it. There's so much more. You've just listened to an episode of Tea and Sanctuary. If you enjoyed the show and would like to be an absolute bless poppet, you can help to keep the teapot full by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash Emma Newman. This episode was brought to you by six cups of tea, two slices of toast with blackberry jam made by a dear friend, and some advice from the local hedgehog. Go forth, my shining ones, and be lovely to each other.